This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. Good afternoon, morning, or evening, wherever you are listening into from around the world. I've got on the show today, Eric Hurst, one of the original founding fathers of modern training theory for climbing. I'm mega psyched to get right into the training chat. This episode is going to be hardcore training, training, and more training. <laughs> Actually, slightly surreal for me sitting here recording this podcast with Eric, as his book was maybe the second or third that I ever bought for climbing. And really, it was my Bible for training all the way through my 20s. And in many ways, what we've tried to achieve at Lattice has been built upon the foundation of work, theory, and practice of coaches like Eric. So it's really cool to see him, even to this day, making a considerable contribution via books, podcasts, videos, and articles, just absolutely loads. Him and his wife, Lisa, have also raised two boys who are incredible athletes themselves. And I'm going to guess probably a product of Eric's know-how. But first up, a big welcome to Eric. I'm really psyched to have you here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Tom. And uh, I'm, uh, I appreciate the kind of introduction. I think you oversold me maybe a little bit, but uh, I, I'm humbled by your words. Well, before I get going, I just want to give a rough formula for how I want to run this interview, because um, I think there's almost like an unlimited number of things that I could cover, but limited time. Um, so my view is that you have an almost unrivaled breadth of experience directly within training results or res- uh, approaches. And what I want to do is dive into each main topic or tool of physical training and find out three main areas where we can understand the previous generation's mistakes, where we're at now, and then what's coming in the future with these. Um, and we'll just take them one by one. And then I'll get your thoughts, Eric, um, on each of those areas. That sounds cool. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so topic one, and it's a real favorite of mine, so I had to start with this one, and that's endurance training. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about, first up, where it originally went with endurance training and some of those early mistakes made uh, with that approach to training. You know, the climbers of my generation uh, that were climbing hard, let's say in the 80s, uh, into the 90s, we trained pretty much, you know, intuitive ways. There wasn't climbing science. There weren't climbing coaches. uh, There was very little published material uh, available. Uh, In the eighties, there was none uh, relating to climbing performance. And so intuitively, how do you train for climbing endurance? Well, you climb and get pumped and then you climb and get pumped again. And then you climb and get pumped some more. And that was quite simply how people trained endurance. And we now know, uh, I understand pretty conclusively that is a failed technique. It works in the short term. You get short-term adaptations that result from the climb to failure approach. But to really grow endurance in the long term takes a much more sophisticated approach based on how the bioenergetic systems work to create ATP in the working muscles. And you know, when you get pumped and uh, you're forearms burn, uh, and eventually your finger force fails, it's a a fail of the anaerobic alactic energy system. And so again, the the climb until you pump, climb until you fail uh, approach 
seems intuitively to stress that system and make it stronger. But interestingly, that anaerobic lactic energy system is the least trainable of the three energy systems. And so it, you can only make it so big. There are definitive limitations. The way to, to grow endurance is to actually develop a stronger aerobic energy system and interestingly, to get stronger, your absolute strength, that anaerobic alactic energy system, kind of that peak finger force. And so by, you know, those are, you know, that's kind of um, the opposite ends of the spectrum, pure force and power at one end, and then aerobic endurance at the other. And so you might say, well, that's not training the anaerobic alactic system, which is in between, but it is because you create a bridge that actually helps you uh, that anaerobic lactic system last longer. To, it's, a, it's, a, it's a finite reserve and you get it to last longer by strengthening the other energy system. So it, it takes a much more sophisticated approach. And I don't think we yet know exactly, you know, what is the best strategy of putting those pieces together, but we're a lot further along than we were 20 years ago. And uh, climbers who just climb to failure constantly actually, I believe, end up getting negative results because the chronic acidosis in the, the finger flexor muscles has a negative effect on mitochondria, which are the you know, powerhouses that generate ATP you know, via um, uh, respiration. And uh, so if you're uh, reducing your mitochondria efficiency or content, from chronic acidosis, you are actually losing endurance. And that's something that actually my generation discovered is that constant climb till you're pumped approach, though it gets you short-term results, in the long-term, you actually find yourself getting, um, you know, your, your endurance waning, which generically we call overtraining. And so, of course, rule number one in modern day training is to, uh, you know, is to avoid kind of falling into that overtraining uh, syndrome. And would I be right in saying that nowadays the approach that you'll take in terms of endurance training is a much more polarized approach of working very, very low intensity, higher volume work, and then, uh, you know, that high intensity interval training, uh, work that's more in the kind of almost like the, the strength spectrum, and then only bringing in that that more threshold work when you're coming into sort of peak performance and sort of refining that either aerobic capacity or anaerobic capacity. Yeah, and this is where some of the coaches and uh, perhaps differ in opinion. And you know, I, I think I don't know if there's anybody who's really looked at the bioenergetics for as long and as closely and thought about it as much as I have. So my opinion might differ. And, you know, some of the confusion when it comes to training these different energy systems and the protocols to use is based on, you know, if you, if you search on the internet for this type of stuff, you're going to find a myriad of papers and articles relating to running and swimming and biking. These uh, steady state sports. Climbing is not a steady state sport. You know, we, you know, do hard moves and then easier moves. We occlude blood flow at times in our forearms and other muscles, and then the blood flow resumes. And so it's, you can't just take what uh, has uh, been published and shown to work or to be the truth uh, in running, let's say, or in track and field or whatnot, 
you can't just transfer those protocols to climbing. That's a mistake that I made a decade ago. And then I, I learned as I further you know, went along. And so um, it's a really complex topic. We could do a whole hour on just this question, Tom. <laughs> so I'm not sure how to, to give a more concise answer, but yes, um, I have been an advocate about the whole polarized approach where for you know, uh, much of the year, you want to do, you know, you want to be constantly maintaining or even expanding your peak strength and power. And you also want to be improving your aerobic energy system, both climbing specific, you know, in the climbing muscles, but also generalized aerobic system, which I think is underplayed by a lot of uh, coaches and, and climbers. Uh, you know, though that gives you the foundation to support the anaerobic system. In terms of prescribing individual workouts, then it gets down into nitty gritty details of different interval training programs and high intensity interval training, which some of which are hard to apply on a climbing wall because, you know, if you're doing bouldering or routes, you are faced with technical difficulties uh, of hard moves or awkward body positions, which slow you down, which, you know, introduce, you know, um, instability to the system. And what I've spent the last few years doing is developing uh, training strategies using a tread wall where you can remove all of those complexities. Uh, and so kind of like a, uh, now I'm going to use an example here, uh, generally, uh, like a uh, runner would go to a track and do an interval workout on the track where he's able to hit specific speeds and you know timing benchmarks and recovery periods and just hit everything perfectly because it's a track. Climbers don't have a track like that unless they have a tread wall where you can set very simple, you know, just basically ladder type routes that don't have technical difficulty, but by changing the angle of the wall, a weight added to the body or the size of the hold grabbed, you can change the intensity. And because it's, you know, you're not climbing boulders or routes with hard, awkward moves, you're not being slowed down or falling off because of that. So you kind of have your quote track to do your interval training on in the form of this tread wall. And uh, I think this is a, if we look to the future, which I know you're, you want me to comment on, I think this is one of the big areas that, uh, holds tremendous potential. It's something I've used with my sons extensively here, training them in our home gym the past few years. They are kind of my uh, guinea pigs uh, that, and, and I am myself, but I'm just an old climber, you know, they're young guns. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it, it's more fun to work with them. Uh, and I've worked with a few pros that I've had here to, to test, but you know, most pros don't have access to a tread wall. So this is still kind of in its infancy. But when I get contacted by climbing gyms or coaches and they're like, hey, we're building a training facility, what do we need? The first thing I say is a couple of tread walls, uh, you know, and for climbing gym uh, owners or investors, they don't want to buy a tread wall because they're like, I just spent a million dollars on this bouldering area or this lead wall. Why do I need a tread wall? And then I try to explain you need to think differently. You know, you need a tread wall for the same reason you need a campus board. You know, it's a tool that allows you to train something very specifically with a lot of uh, nuance, which is increasingly important as a climber, uh, you know, it gets, you know, moves up the food chain, you know, through the sport, you need 
uh, more nuanced training and protocols and the tread wall allows you to target different energy systems. And so, um, yeah, so there's a lot there, but I'll stop talking and uh, see what you have to say. <laughs> no, that was, that was absolutely brilliant. And uh, it was funny listening to you talking because whenever I chat to you, whenever we start kind of talking about something, I'm going, oh my goodness, we should probably just talk about this alone for about 45 minutes or an hour. Yeah. Um, but we have to be careful not to go down a, yeah, a, a training science theory rabbit hole. So yeah. I will move on and I will make us stick to our schedule of things to, uh, to move on to. Um, so let me, without further ado, go the sort of other end of the spectrum um, is onto the topic of strength training. And, okay. uh, and I think it'll be interesting to hear what you your views are on this, because I feel like there's been a longer history and an earlier peak, perhaps, in approach and methodology with strength training versus endurance training and climbing. But I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. Yes, yes, 100 uh, percent. So with regard to what we just talked about, you know, the training of the aerobic energy system and how the three energy systems interact I think we're still in the infancy in that. I think we have a lot of road to go and a lot of improvement to make, but I, I think I'm, I'm on the right track with some of that stuff that we can explore later. But you're right, when it comes to strength training, what the climbers did intuitively 20, 30, even 40 years ago is very similar to what we're doing today. Uh, and, you know, uh, one of, the, you know, the icon, you know, I started climbing in the late 70s as a teenager uh, when there weren't very many teenage climbers around. Uh, and my absolute rock god and idol was a gentleman named John Gill, the famous boulderer, who, as it turns out, he didn't know it, but he was bouldering V10 in 1959. Just insane. He was ahead of his time. Uh, and so he was uh, someone that I engaged uh, in my early days as a climbing trainer and coach. And because uh, I thought, he, he was kind of the father. I look at him as the father of training for climbing. And what he was doing back then is what we do now. He was hanging on small edges with one hand. That sounds familiar. That's the lattice board. Uh, he was doing pull-ups and one-arm pull-ups with added weight. Well, that's what I see on Instagram, you know, Alex Megos doing every day and a myriad of other climbers. Uh, so, uh, what John Gill did intuitively in the 60s and 70s is what we're doing in 2022. Now, today we have a lot of great um, tools where we can measure these things uh, and we can collect data. John Gill was a, you know, experiment of one. And then he kind of gave birth to uh, people like me, the next generation. Uh, uh, and, you know, my friend, uh, the late, great Todd Skinner was someone who uh, I shared a lot of passionate conversation with, like you and I are talking right now, Tom, that was Todd and I back in the late 1980s, you know, positing how we could train uh, more effectively. And there were others, you know, John Long and Lynn Hill uh, here in the United States and you know, Wolfgang Gulick, of course, in Europe and, you know, Ben Moon, and we can go through the history of all that stuff. But we all kind of were either training intuitively ourselves, or we were maybe picking up on a couple of things we saw from the people before us. And again, John Gill 
led the way when it came to uh, finger strength training. And it's, it's what we're doing today. Uh, obviously, we have our protocols a little better understood. And there's been some research, you know, Ava Lopez, uh, the Anderson brothers, you know, there's a few papers out there on fingerboard training. But, you know, I don't think there's, quote, a single best protocol. And I think you would probably agree with that, too. It depends on the person and what their needs are. Uh, and so, uh, and even with hangboard studies, if you put somebody on a hangboard program that's new, they're going to get benefit out of it just because of the novelty. So just because of the paper saying that this hangboard program gave positive results, well, we could probably do 12 different hangboard programs and they would each give somewhat positive results as long as they were novel programs. And so I think there's still a lot to be learned and fleshed out, but I think, um, you know, beyond the obvious things, uh, it comes down to it being appropriately personalized uh, for the individual. Yeah, I have to say, like, if I, if I think about the the area where strength training is going, it is this understanding of the appropriate individualization of strength training protocol to the athlete, because my goodness, we see such a variance in adaptation to very similar protocols with similar athlete histories across the method. It's just so different. You can, you can, you can throw the same method to two athletes who are almost identical and that have completely different response. Um, and it makes you realize how different it's like, I'd love to, I mean, at the moment you can only do things like going in and having my muscle biopsies to understand even those basic things around kind of muscle makeup. But that to me is where a, a big part of the future lies, because I think it's not just a small effect in that, you know, just chipping away at little one or two, 3% factors that particular factor is massive. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the more elite the athlete becomes, the more uh, important these little things come into play. You know, climbing is, of course, so complex with all the mental and technical aspects, uh, and, you know, tactical factors that, uh, you know, early on, uh, people can excel with widely different physical capabilities. You know, there's people that climb... 512 or 7b uh, that can't do a pull-up if they are very skilled in movement uh, and such. Uh, but in the higher grades, especially if the route is overhanging, you need to be strong. Uh, and so it, it, you know, we're not wasting our time collecting all this data that relates to strength. You know, it's a very important thing. But then again, you, it, some people, um, and I think I've made this mistake in the past, so I'm, you know, going to blame myself. You know, sometimes we fall in love with our data and think it means more than it does. And, and let me give you a, a case in point is, you know, one of these things that you've been involved with that I love is building these databases, a database of key performance indicators. Uh, and that's fantastic. Let's keep it going. Uh, but, you know, the data collection needs to be properly controlled. Uh, you know, if you're going to test yourself and then see how you rank or how you compare, well, were the conditions the same when you were tested in terms of rest days and the time of day and the ambient conditions and what you ate before you worked out? And there, there's a myriad of things that will impact the, 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 you know, what you actually measure on that day. And here's something else. Assuming you get an accurate measurement uh, and then you go to the chart and it says, well, this finger force correlates with this grade. Um, 
there, you know, again, that doesn't mean you're going to climb that grade. And I'm going to use myself as an example. I know um, a couple of the databases seem to indicate that if you can hold your body weight on a 20 millimeter edge, one hand. So if you, in other words, if your finger force with one hand is about equal to your body weight, that seems to correlate quite often with people climbing 8B plus, you know, 514A. Or more. Or more, okay? Well, that is my finger force right now on a good day is I can squeeze my body weight, but yet I've never climbed that grade. So why is that? Well, it's not because I I lack the technique and it's not because I lack the mental skills. I've been climbing 45 years. I pride myself on having very good technique and mental control. You know, I'm a veteran climber. So of course I should be quite good in those areas. And so then if I have this finger force and I have the technique in the mind, why haven't, you know, why am I not out doing AP plus this weekend at the Red River Gorge? Well, I mean, I think there's a number of reasons, but I think, you know, analyzing myself fairly, I think it's what is between my fingers and my toes. That is, that is what is, is preventing me. It's like applying finger force is important, but it's also, you know, you need to create tension between your fingers and toes. You know, we don't climb a route like a campus board. We climb a route with our hands and feet, twisting and turning our body and creating tension to, so that we can move in the most efficient and effective ways. And my analysis is I have a 58 year old body. I, my joints ache, my connective tissues are 58 years old. Although I think I'm a very healthy person for my age. Uh, I can't create this steely connection between my fingers and toes the way say my sons can. And so I think my limiting constraint is, uh, is uh, not the finger force, but it's again, what is connecting my fingers and toes. Uh, and I, I don't want to go beyond that, uh, you know, to what I, I need to work on. That's come my own battle every day, but uh, you know, there's just so much more to climbing than just finger force though. It is important. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's a funny old topic, and it really, it re- it does get people really, either very passionate or riled up or excited or confused or all sorts of different things. Because I think it's it's very simplistic in the sense that it's uh, a very understandable piece of data that people can collect, but they will often overly weight it in terms of their performance or what it means that they, and I'm doing air quotes right now, should climb Mm. rather than I always feel like basic performance metrics like this should be one, a tool for identifying where you may put your focus in your climbing and areas to look at. So for you example, is that if I pull out a climber that is scoring way above what I would expect them to on their finger strength, but not achieving the grade for me, normally, the first port of call is to then look at other areas. I won't further investigate that level of finger strength. Right. I might come back to it with time, but it will point me to other way, other places. And then secondly, coupled with that is it's a really nice basic performance training metric to track over time and use to assess whether someone is losing basic strength sometimes it's quite useful to assess um calorific intake and how someone's actually fueling their body and whether they're just reducing Mm -hmm. their strength 
and peak force over time is it's those kind of two sides of the equation i think is yeah. the, the real value but we've also fallen into this slight trap that um and i think lattice is guilty of this as as anyone is is that we love publishing these little kind of tip, tidbits around you know key bits of data body weight hangs on a 20 mil edge and how it relates to certain grades but people take it to the sort of the nth degree beyond mm. what it really should be taken then it doesn't mean you should climb this grade or you can't climb another grade it's it's a little bit more complex and nuanced than that right that it, it sure is and and i agree with everything you just said there and you know more common is uh what i experience working with you know I work mostly with advanced climbers is, uh, you know, their finger force actually isn't what's holding them back when you test them. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of the people that want to be tested, well, it's because they train fingers and they, uh, they're, they're strong and they want to see how strong they are. Uh, and then you test them and say, yeah, you're, you are really strong. Uh, but the reason you're not climbing the next grade is actually probably not the fingers. It's, it's everything else. And, you know, for younger climbers, you know, climbing so complex that, you know, you need to climb for many years. You know, I, I mean, I, I like to think I'm still improving my technique even after 45 years of climbing. And I think I am in little tiny bits and pieces on specific routes. I, I still discover new things uh, that, I mean, at my age, I'm looking for things that can save me energy because, you know, that's, that's the smartest thing you can do when you climb is if you can save, if you can find a way to do a move with a lower ATP cost, you are basically a stronger climber by doing that without being stronger. So, you know, so as an older climber, that's what I'm always seeking. But even as a younger climber, you should be seeking that is, you know, dialing in the mental and technical and tactical game is, you know, that can get you the next grade quickly. Whereas a finger training program might take months or years to get you the next grade by itself. Uh, and so, yeah, there's, it's, it's such a complex thing, but yet those numbers are titillating, you know, when we measure them and, you know, seeing the photos on Instagram of, of these tests being done is titillating. Uh, but uh, the reason we don't pay more um, attention, I guess, to the technical and mental side of things is there are no simple tests or metrics for that. Like you, you have to assess movement subjectively for the most part as a coach, I need to see somebody in person and, you know, make these subjective assessments. You know, as a rule of thumb, if it if somebody makes something look easy, they're a skilled climber. And if they make it look hard, they're a less skilled climber. That's a very crude, subjective assessment, but it works. Um, but then when it comes to the mental uh, side of things, uh, again, it's very hard. You know, there's no cut and dried objective tests like there are putting somebody on a finger force device and measuring it. And so uh, I think it, it's easy to ignore or overlook those areas, even though they are for many climbers, a gold mine for improvement. Mm. Well, well that, that leads me absolutely perfectly into the next topic, which is uh, performance profiling. And uh, that's something which uh, I think has gone a, a certain distance, but I mean, there is a lot, lot further to go with it. Um, so be, yeah, fascinating to hear your, your sort of perspective on this and, where it's come from, where you think we are now and, you know, what's good and bad and, and, and where it's going. In, in what context? Uh, just in terms of uh, te testing, collecting data, 
um, creating performance markers within climbing um, uh, across climbing. So the performance, the, the task of performance profiling and physical yeah. training. Is. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a trainer and coach, uh, you know, although I don't do as much as I used to, cause I have other business interests now, but uh, I, I love data. I'm a scientist by training. And so I, I naturally enjoy collecting data, whether it's body weight data, body fat data, finger force data, pull up data. I love that kind of stuff. But, you know, again, if you're working with a beginner climber, that stuff really isn't necessary because they just need to learn to climb. Uh, they need to learn the basics. And uh, so until somebody's a few years into the sport, I don't think, you know, there's a lot to be gained. I mean, it doesn't hurt to collect the data, but it might almost take you off course and have, uh, you know, uh, the person, you know, um, become enamored of physical training when really if they're, they've only been climbing two years there's still so much to be gained just through climbing uh, and practice and getting on different rock types and, uh, and, and such, you know, because climbing is first and foremost a skill sport, a technical and mental skill sport. Uh, but as someone advances and comes up upon plateaus, I guess that's when I feel they need to really have, they would benefit from a good assessment from somebody like you or I, you know, a coach who uh, has a, a good array of tools and techniques uh, and experience base to you know, take some measurements and draw some conclusions. Uh, until you reach that first plateau, I just don't think it's necessary. Uh, and so some climbers might reach that plateau in two years and others, it might be 10 years until they plateau out. You know, we all kind of progress at different rates for different reasons, you know, how much time you can put into climbing and traveling and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but once you experience that first plateau, then I think it, it deserves a deeper look where you can collect some data. And so I kind of look at the, the data as being kind of the dashboard of your car, you know, where you have all the instruments telling you different things. And so, uh, you know, that first assessment you get with a, with a, a good coach or with a lattice person um, can be elusive. And uh, I, I think, I, I guess, you need to include with that, not just those physical you know, objective tests, but if possible, that subjective movement test uh, and, you know, a mental assessment skill test, which again are tougher things to, to uncover. But if, if a coach is working with an, a climber one-on-one, -on -one, it can be done, you know, again, kind of subjectively by spending a session together, uh, you can unlock some things. But if you're training somebody remotely, largely you're limited to these physical parameters uh, and then prescribing protocols and then checking back in a few months later and making course corrections. Uh, and so we have to do the best we can do. And have you seen anything in the industry, which has kind of made you kind of look again or get really excited in terms of that performance profiling from either a technical, tactical or psychological approach? Because I think I, I wholeheartedly agree that there's been plenty done on the physical side of things, but it is only one part of the equation. It'd be so good if we had some really good um, either platforms, tools or quality data or methodologies to go for in, in those other areas. Yeah, well, there's been some published research. Uh, you know, I'm a member of the International Rock Climbers Researchers Association, and every two years we have a symposium where uh, all the researchers in climbing internationally get together and share what they've been working on. And there's been some uh, interesting studies relating to movement quality where they use uh, center of gravity trackers 
you know, that's the best way to track a climber on a route isn't looking at their hands and feet, but tracking their center of gravity. So you can put a sensor on and you can make a video and you can track the, the path of the center of gravity and uh, green useful information from the, the path that they take. And as they, if they climb a route repeatedly, they get more efficient and you can see how that path changes. Obviously how quick it takes them to go up the route and their, their pace changes with each attempt. Uh, so I think there's opportunities to develop, uh, to perhaps utilize again in person uh, technology like that to track things. Um, Udo Neumann from Germany uh, is, you know, I think, you know, the, um, you know, uh, the, 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 I think the expert at assessing movement, he's just uh, put so much deep thought into it. Uh, like you and I do more maybe into physical training things. Udo is the movement guy who really uh, digs deeply and is uh, uh, keen on breaking down videos, competition videos, and comparing different climbers doing the same boulder and looking at the, the very nuanced differences between the different climbers, some of which might be because of their body size and shape and flexibility, but also just their different approach to taking on a boulder. Um, and some people find more efficient ways than others. And, you know, he, he takes these videos and draws lines on them and marks the center of gravity. And uh, uh, it's very, I mean, they're all studies of one, but, uh, it opens your mind to what is possible, uh, but I think there's still a technology gap. Whereas today we have some of these sensors and finger force detectors that we can use to gather some of the key physical performance indicators. We don't really quite have the tools to do that, you know, uh, when it comes to movement, uh, at least not easily. Uh, again, I think right now the main tools are eyes as a coach, you know, seeing somebody climb and, uh, you know, that subjective assessment. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's another area where there's a lot of room to grow here as a sport. You know, climbing just debuted in the Olympics. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of the research that we look at in other sports are sports that, you know, track and field have been around for a century or more. And there's been re research for decades and decades on. And so, um, you know, I think it's fun to, or I think it's, you know, accurate to say we're still in the infancy of training for climbing and climbing science and, and the research. And so there's a, a lot to, you know, a lot to be done in the coming years and a lot to be gained, uh, to help climbers train smarter, reduce injury risk, uh, and, uh, you know, help take the absolute performance level to the next, you know, to, um, the next level. Yeah. And, and never enough time either to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that, that's always the problem. I mean, time for coaches, time for athletes. Uh, I mean, one good thing about climbing because of the complexity of the sport, the length of the careers can be very, very long. If you're a professional or even as an amateur, you can continue to improve for decades and you can climb at a high level uh, into your middle ages, uh, middle age, certainly. Whereas a lot of sports, you age out or you physically are out at, you know, the, many of the Olympic sports by your mid-20s. Uh, the endurance activities, uh, people tend to peak uh, more into their 30s. And I think that's kind of more how climbing is. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the best climbers of today, like Megos and Andra and Schubert and, uh, you know, the strong ladies out there, uh, you know, half a dozen of them who have climbed nine A plus, uh, you know, Julia and Margot and Anka, 
uh, you know, they, they haven't aged out yet, you know, so it's going to be fun to see them continue into their thirties. If they stay motivated, if they avoid injury. Uh, and then there's the next generation, the generation of the, the kids that are 18 to, to 23 now, uh, man, they, they're the ones that are going to really take it to the next level and probably benefit uh, from things that folks like Lattice are working on today. And because of um, moving slightly onto um, some of the key tools that we all use within training, um, I, I'd really like to kind of um, just break down, I suppose, where you feel like we're at with a few key things that like most climbers are using for their training. Um, and then in particular, where you think people should be looking at in terms of moving forward their own training. So like areas to, to pay attention to. Um, so for example, um, the first one I wanted to look at was fingerboard training. Um, and, um, uh, that is a sort of, you know, a, a basic finger strength training tool, but where do you think that people are typically that you see missing a gap in terms of their approach to fingerboard training? Are there any obvious gaps that just through his, historic habits or cultural patterns that we all just follow the other the other person down the gym doing exactly the same repeater protocol and we go oh we should do the same because you see someone else doing it um i'd love to get your thoughts on that yeah well uh yeah this is a rich topic that we could you know really spend some time on uh you know again for for the um for the let's say weekend warrior it's a, i don't know if that's a, a common term in europe but in yeah, it is, yeah. In America, we talk about weekend warriors who train in the week and climb on the weekends. Uh, and so there's a lot of passionate, I'm kind of a weekend warrior most of the year. And, you know, so you're training on a hangboard or at a, a gym during the week, and then you're climbing outside. And uh, I, I think for many of the weekend warriors, they, they do a really good job training, you know, the physical aspects with the different, you know, protocols, hangboarding and system walling and, and such. And what they're missing, what's going to get them to the next grade is actually more time on the rock. So kind of as a global statement, um, except for the pro climbers and the people that are on endless road trips, I think the average climber, the weekend warrior, the person with a job or in school that's you know just climbing part-time, the most important thing they can do beyond what they're doing training is to actually get on the real rock more often because, um, you know, it, 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 climbing is so complex and there's it, as amazing as indoor walls are and system walls are, it's no, it's a, it's a poor representation of outdoor climbing. It just, it just is of course. And so the more you can get out on real rock, I think, you know, any weekend warrior or typical climber benefits more by getting on the real rock more. So I think that's step number one, when it, when it comes to the training, uh, there is a lot of copycat training going on. And I think social media drives a lot of that. Uh, you know, common thing you see on social media is, you know, people demonstrating what they can campus. So I can do a one, four, seven, or I can do a one, five, eight. Uh, and so all of a sudden we are getting an internet, uh, you know, an Instagram competition trying to, you know, take our campusing to the next level, even though it's debatable whether that's going to actually make you a better climber or not. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are amazing on the campus board that don't climb that well outside. <laughs> and, uh, and furthermore, if you're someone who's always trying to like stretch your limits on a campus board, you're going to get hurt because, you know, if you're grabbing that distant rung 
with a disengaged shoulder, which is what you ha what happens when you're trying to campus beyond your abilities, beyond your strength, you end up doing poor technique. And that's one of the reasons there's so many shoulder injuries these days, among other reasons. Uh, so I think people have to resist uh, that, that copycat tendency and you know try to take a little more mature approach to their training. Uh, when it comes to hangboard training, you know, I'm a big proponent of doing these max hangs, you know, these min edge or max weighted hangs or these one arm hangs, because that is an important technique for taking your peak finger force to the next level. But if that's all you're doing, you're, you're kind of missing the boat because you, you can only gain so much strength that way. It's not just an endless every month you're getting stronger. Of course, uh, it's oftentimes, uh, you know, you get a new peak and then you're stuck there for months or seasons and just doing more and more of the same thing doesn't break that peak. You know, it needs to be mixed up and you need to introduce some novelty into the program. Uh, furthermore, if you're a route climber, uh, you know, and you just obsess on max hangs or min edge hangs, well, that's just anaerobic alactic. That's a five second or at most a 10 second effort with a lot of rest in between. And that's not route climbing. Um, you might do that on the hardest move of the route, but most of the route you're operating, you know, at or below that anaerobic threshold where it's the oxidative system. And so you need to, during the week, find ways to uh, um, stress that climbing specific aerobic system. I'm thinking, you know, the climbing muscles, the finger flexor muscles and the, the muscles in your upper, in your torso, uh, that you want to improve the aerobic capacity, the, the, the capillary density, the mitochondria density, uh, you know, in, in increase the, the enzymes that support the energy systems in those climbing specific muscles. And doing max hangs does none of that, zero. Uh, and so uh, you, you asked me to mention something that's overlooked. I think hangboard training with less than body weight. I, I don't know anybody who does that. Very few people do that. Uh, but um, I think there's a lot of value in that, especially if you don't have access to a climbing wall. If you're someone with a hangboard at home and that is your main training tool, then doing you know the max hangs uh, two sessions a week is a good thing for developing that finger force. But then doing two sessions of less than body weight training where you're uh, either have a pulley system, you put your feet on an edge or in a chair or some way to unload the hold so that you're operating at just a fraction of body weight and you can stay on the board for uh, several minutes or you can do, you know, you know, repeaters, you know, 20 sets of repeaters without failing. You know, you're not doing repeaters to failure. You're doing repeaters that you avoid failure. And so this is a, probably a novel concept to a lot of our listeners. They're saying, wait, training on a hangboard to avoid failure? Yeah, that's, that's actually a training technique. It's how you train the aerobic energy system. Now, you can get on a climbing wall and climb submaximally and do the same thing. But again, what if you don't have access to a climbing wall during the week? Well, then you can do some hangboard training with various protocols that are less than body weight. So, um, and then you can do a hangboard training pro protocol that, that targets the anaerobic lactic energy system that gets you pumped. And so you can train all three energy systems on a hangboard, but you need distinctly different protocols. And it takes discipline to engage them properly because it's it's just a hangboard is um, a tool that's easy to use, but it's easy to misuse as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're big fans of the uh, sub body weight uh, 
fingerboard work. Yeah, good for you. Whether, yeah. Whether it's like 70%, 50%, 40%, even thir- down to 30% of MVC. Um, and uh, I think a lot of climbers that I saw globally became a little bit more aware of it because during lockdowns and the pandemic, people were forced to train mm-hmm. at home with very limited tools. And they start to look around and go, well, how do I train endurance on a fingerboard? And then they came across this concept. And I think there's been a lot more, at least familiarity, maybe not buy-in, but certainly familiarity with um, that particular method of fingerboarding over the last couple of years. Um, it was also good to hear you say about um, climbers not overly focusing on fingerboard training and not forgetting that the true, you know, the most valuable item here really when it comes to performance and climbing is actually going climbing and going on rock outside. Because a few years back, I was I was looking through our data sets at all the climbers that I was looking at them performance metrics and going, this is just crazy how strong these people are. They're really strong, really fit. Everything about their physical profile just said it screamed high level elite, you know, nine A's, V13s or more sometimes um, really high level. But they just were way, way off these grades. And what I did was I went and spoke to a whole load of them and asked them about the number of days that they were having outside a year climbing on real rock. And nearly all of them were sub 75 days or so a year outside which effectively is less than two days, like less than every weekend, just one day, um, one and a half days across the year. And you suddenly realize that if that's common across that group, it's a, it's an issue. If you can't get on rock really regularly through the year, it's going to really put you in a much more awkward position. Yes, for sure. And I mean, that's something that I can personally relate to because for most of my climbing life, I am that climber that's less than 75 days a year. Uh, and so are my sons who, who climb it at a very high level for their age. Uh, they have never climbed more than 75 days in a year because uh, through their youth, uh, they were multi-sport athletes. So they had um, a, you know up to six months a year where they didn't climb outside. They would train a little bit at home, uh, but they weren't climbing outside except during their they're off season from those other sports. Uh, and, uh, and for a lot of people, you know, that are weekend warriors or people like myself, I had a university job for many years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have my climbing businesses, you know, and I squeeze in as much climbing as I can, but, you know, to get a, to, to get out 50, 60, 70 days a year, that's a challenge for a lot of people. Uh, and so when I coach people, uh, and, and consult with them, yeah, that's one of the first questions I ask is how many days a year do you boulder or route climb outside? Uh, and the number is often surprisingly low. And so I try to communicate t- to them. I know it's hard because, you know, life is tough with jobs and careers and families and bills and all that stuff. But if there's a way to climb outside more often, that, you know, that is just, that's the wild card, you know, in climbing performance, because, when you climb outside, you are improving in all areas. Whereas when you're in a gym on a system wall or a fingerboard, you're developing a much narrower uh, part of your of this big skill set that climbing demands. And so, uh, I guess Tom, that's why I kind of hold out hope, even at age 58, that I can still make another grade or two upward. Is I'm trying to make more room in my schedule now. Uh, my wife and I are empty nesters and I have a climbing business that 
I can, to some degree, run on the road. Uh, and so my goal here the past few years and in the, in the coming years is to try to get beyond that 75-day threshold. So, uh, and because I kind of think that might be what it takes for me to get to that next level is climbing more often and investing more time into individual routes, you know, which is something I haven't done a lot of in the past. I'm not a long-term project kind of guy. Uh, but maybe I need to be to take it to the next level. And, uh, and for my sons, you know, they're, they're 19 and 21. And yes, they grew up with a climbing coach in their house uh, and with a climbing gym in their basement. But they, because they did other sports and only uh, climbed basically six months of the year, you know, uh, growing up, I, I, they're kind of, in a way, you might say, behind on um, accumulating skill. Uh, and so that's something that I'm trying now they're both in college now. And so they have an obligation there, but uh, you know, they are trying to get more, they're done with their other sports now that they're in college, they're pro climbers basically. Uh, and so they need to find a way to get more days on the rock because just training in the gym, though it's better than nothing. Uh, it's, it's not everything. Uh, and really, you know, if you can couple some very um, personalized, effective gym training with getting outside frequently three days a week, let's say, instead of one or two days a week. That is when things just, I think for many climbers go wild and they have a big breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I know we're uh, sort of running short on time, uh, Eric, and uh, I, I I want to ask, would you mind if I just ask you one more tool uh, and to get your insights on it um, before sure. we finish up? Have you got time? Yeah, sure. Okay, so last thing um, I'm, I'm interested to uh, see your views on is uh, the phenomenon of uh, system boards. And, you know, again, those have been around for a long time. I think the Huber brothers were some of the, the earliest proponents uh, of that very systemized um, uh, board training, you know, whether it's in a cellar, attic, garage, mm. um, and it's evolved into nowadays things like the kilter board, moon board, um, et cetera. And where do you feel that fits in the training performance spectrum? And is there anything that you feel like it misses still and, and, will take us to the next level in terms of our experiences and value out of system boards. Yeah, well, uh, I think it is a uh, incredible tool, especially the modern system boards with the app connectivity and the adjustable angle walls, like the Kilder and the Grasshopper and, and such. Uh, I think it's a fantastic tool. It's obviously not, you know, a, a tool that you can do all of your training on, but it has you know, certain things that it is uh, beneficial for and other things that it completely misses out uh, on. Uh, I, I think it's uh, amazing, like from a community standpoint, the way the, 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 the system boards that have apps connected to them now, where boulder problems can be developed and named and there's a first ascensionist and then you, know, you can like tick off your, your route when you do it. Uh, and, you know, you have this database of thousands of boulders on this little wall that you, you know, can uh, come in and constantly have access to. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and it is 
in some ways kind of a replacement for going bouldering outside. If you don't have boulders readily available, that system will opens up, you know, a, a wide variety of, of, of boulder problems and graves right at your fingertips. So that's all awesome. But I think the downside is, is A, if it totally captivates you, a, a climber to the point that they just go to the gym and do that, they're missing out on a lot of other important things. Uh, and also, you know, by nature of the size of the system board and by nature, you know, people tend to get on those boards and want to project, you know, work things near their limit. Uh, you end up, maybe every session turns into a competition with yourself where you're uh, there to do the next V hard problem, you know, that's at your limit and, and you know, check another box. And, you know, cause that's very gratifying and fulfilling to do that. It makes you feel good. And again, nothing wrong with that, but if that is every session, if every session is a performance, it's actually not effective training. It's like a soccer player or a football player or name another athlete, another sport. If all they did was competition day, that's not training, that's competition. And so the people that go to the system wall three or four days a week and just keep pushing themselves on hard routes, they may get short-term gains and short-term pleasure, but I think long-term, it's a failed approach to training. I think the system wall is a great tool to be part of a larger training program that involves a lot of other things. And so um, uh, that's kind of my perspective. I think it's an incredible advancement. I put it up there, you know, especially the, the computerized, you know, app-driven system boards. I put it up there with the hangboard and the campus board as being innovations that really change training for climbing. Uh, I think it's that important, but it's not everything. It's like if all you did was hangboard, it's, that's kind of a, a dead end to you know, climbing training. You know, it's only gonna get you so far because it just misses so many things. And system wall is obviously more climbing specific. It's hands and feet, it's movement oriented. You need to try hard. Uh, so that's all good. It trains like different, you know, abilities in that regard, but yet it's still quite limited. Uh, you know, the average system board route takes you 10 to 20 seconds to do. So that's anaerobic alactic into the beginning mode of the anaerobic lactic. Uh, and the oxidative system is basically missing except during the rest breaks. Uh, and so in terms of energy system training, it's, you know, uh, kind of always targeting the exact same uh, capability and therefore has uh, limited, uh, you know, some limitations to it. Uh, now you can go use a system wall in other ways. If you go in there and do a session where you're doing all submaximal routes or you're doing bouldering four by fours on a system wall at, you know, way below your limit, well, then all of a sudden you can train other energy systems. But I don't see people very often using system walls that way. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, no, you, you're right. It's it's used in quite a yeah a one-dimensional way, and it is a a much more diverse and broad tool if people are to use it in that way. It just requires. My, my personal feeling is that it needs the next level of sort of user experience within the apps which are connected to them. So, and I think Kilt has just started to address this in the sense that they ha now have route climbing circuits where they'll timed whether 
the LEDs change and you can follow loops and circuits. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of do endurance or power endurance training on the boards. But I'd also like to see um, technique drills or coordination problems go on the board where it's actually developing skill and technique. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. you could have a good user experience and that. I think it would be very motivating, very engaging and very productive for people. I agree 100%. I think that would be taking it to the next level for sure is uh, you have the, the program take you through, you know, a, a five, eight level movement sequence. Yeah. Uh, and then you say, okay, well, give me a five, nine level movement sequence. Uh, and, you know, I, I think Kilder's pushing the edge on that stuff. I, I just recently uh, used a Kilder board for the first time and kind of got to see the engineering of it. And it blew my mind. I'm like, I need to have one of these, but it's like, okay, I don't know where to put it. And I don't have the money to buy one for myself. Uh, but that was my instinct was, it was just a really remarkable tool. And like you said, there's so much more that can be done with it. One problem though, is like in a gym setting, because these are expensive and most people can't put one in their home, uh, you go to a gym and, you know, if there's a dozen people using one uh, kilter board or system wall, and somebody goes in and says, I'm going to do, you know, my circuits, my two minute circuits on it. That's kind of hogging the wall, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of other people that want to jump in and do their boulders. And so it, it, it's almost like you would need to have, you know, several system walls in a gym, which if I was building a gym, I think I would do that. And I think I would have a kilter and a moon and, you know, a tension uh, so that you would be able to multiply the variety uh, by having the different companies boards and, uh, and backing up to something I mentioned a while ago is same thing with the tread wall. I think every gym should have not one, but two or three tread walls because they are such valuable tools uh, in a completely different way from a tension board, kind of the opposite that the tread wall, again, I uh, envision it and use it and promote it as a, a tool for training you know, for doing various interval training protocols and not doing problems like you do on a a tension board, but using it simply to target the climbing specific muscles at different intensities uh, with different work rest ratios that will spin up specific energy systems. So, you know, yeah, this is a whole nother level of sophistication to training program design that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. If there's coaches listening to this, I hope, I hope they think it's, you know, I hope they see the value that you and I see in it because it is next level. It's next level. It's, it's 20, it's the year 2028 type of stuff that we're talking about here in 2022 for us to maybe see things progress that far. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll, uh... And by the way, I, one thing we didn't mention much, and I, I need to, you know, uh, we, you know, we've talked a lot about the past, the present, and the future. Uh, I, I think, you know, not enough credit is, is due to the Germans, Wolfgang Gulick and his uh, coach researcher with the campus board. I mean, that, to think uh, uh, that uh, it's been 33 years or something like that, uh, you know, when I go to Germany a, a couple of times, I visited the original campus board just to touch it because it's like a holy grail. Uh, what they imagined and, you know, you know, figuring out how to kind of create a, a form of plyometric training for climbers. It's a very specific tool and it's not meant for a lot of climbers. But if you're a more advanced climber, it's an important tool that we haven't talked about. And, you know, 
that tool, uh, I mean, I think every climbing gym worth its salt has a campus board, right, these days. And to, you know, think uh, about Wolfgang, you know, kind of um, appreciating uh, the value of that, uh, you know, 30 plus years ago, he, he was so far ahead of his time. And uh, I, I think that that's a tool that is integral, you know, there's no better way to train rate of force development. And actually, I believe connective tissue strength is best developed through a campus board, you know, rate of transfer through connective tissues is a very exciting subject. Uh, and uh, something that needs to be explored more in research. Um, so it's uh, got several benefits to it. But unfortunately, used by the person who's not ready to use it, of course, it's an injury board that will just wreck your fingers, your shoulders, your elbows. Uh, you need to be strong enough and uh, have the proprioception to maintain good posture and arm and shoulder position when you're campusing. And uh, so uh, it's kind of a, the, a two-edged sword. It's an amazing tool for the right person, but it's totally the wrong tool for a lot of people. And I'll leave it at that. But I just wanted to give that a mention here since we've talked about a lot of different platforms for training for climbing that, you know, the campus board uh, is just, it was Rev it was so far ahead of its time, you know, uh, and uh, to this day is one of the most powerful tools, uh, you know, for the right climber. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I feel like uh, just chatting today, I've got another kind of four or five podcasts lined up where I'm like, right, I'm just going to get Eric <laughs> back on and we'll talk about this and then we'll go through that and look at that. So, um, yeah, we've got to be careful we don't uh, go on forever with these things. Um, one thing I wanted to, um, just um, give you some space to chat about um, before you go, because I know this is something that's um, really important to you. And, and I think that you've made a, a big impact already in, in terms of what you've done with PhysiVantage um, and the nutritional aspect of um, climbing performance. Um, it'd be really cool if you could just share with the audience what you're doing um, with PhysiVantage and what your vision is really with it. That's right. Well, you know, uh, climbing is, a, as, as we've talked, you know, over the past hour, a very complex activity with the mental, the technical and the physical aspects. And, you know, to really train effectively over the long term and to stay in the game and continue to improve for many years, hopefully decades to come, a, a climber needs to take a holistic approach and, and consider all of these things we've talked about. And the one thing we didn't talk about is, is nutrition and diet. And, you know, that to me is the other side of the training coin is, you know, training is a stimulus for getting stronger, you know, building a, a more bulletproof body and, you know, more strength and endurance. But, you know, the nutrition is the other side of the coin that provides you with the building blocks to build a stronger body and to have the energy level to grow your ability uh, to exert force and have endurance. Uh, and, you know, I think, for many people, myself included, uh, you know, we just kind of eat intuitively. We eat what we want. We eat for pleasure. And that's fine. I think, you know, eating should be pleasurable. There are certain foods that I just absolutely love and look forward to, and I reward myself with them. Uh, but then there are periods where, you know, if you're heading into a performance period, that if you really want to do your best, you need to kind of tighten the strings a little bit and eat more mindfully. Um, and um, with, uh, 
you know, performance in mind and recovery in mind. And so a diet of beer and pizza and fast food isn't going to cut it. And so I've experienced both in my own life in the past, but also in working with hundreds, actually probably thousands of climbers. There's a lot of people that are doing a lot of things right, training right, climbing frequently, you know, trying to improve their mental game. But then when you analyze their nutrition, it's a disaster. You know, they're getting less than 50 grams of protein a day. And then they wonder why they have achy tendons or they recover slowly uh, or they don't feed properly during the climbing day or they overfeed. You know, they go on a bouldering session for two hours and they're eating tons of food where you don't need to eat any food if you're just going climbing for two hours. You have enough glycogen in your muscles and, and, and liver to fuel a two hour workout. Though if you're going out for a longer session, you do need to fuel while you're out there. And so it's actually a topic that demands uh, some attention. And uh, as a climber progresses and is trying to, you know, uh, um, unlock that puzzle to long-term improvement and hopefully avoiding injury, nutrition is something you need to take uh, into mind. And it ultimately needs to be very specific to the sport. You know, you can buy a book on nutrition or listen to generalized nutrition podcasts and gain a lot of good information about healthful eating, you know, eating to live longer and to improve your blood lipids and you know, avoid diabetes and all that stuff is important for longevity. But climbing specific nutrition is another step beyond that and giving your body the very specific things it needs. And so when it comes to nutrition and especially supplements, there was no company out there to address that specifically for climbers until three years ago when I launched Fizzy Vantage. And so I set out with the help of, uh, you know, the, some scientists and nutritionists, uh, and I kind of knew what I needed to achieve. And we have developed a line. Uh, it's now grown to eight products that are uh, climbing specific, and I think help fill some gaps that could be missing or are actually are missing from most people's diets. Uh, and can help many climbers perform better, recover faster, and most importantly, reduce injury. Uh, and no, these nutritional supplements aren't silver bullets. Uh, I, you know, I'm always very honest that if you're training wrong and you know overtraining or you know not climbing much or you have a crap diet of whole foods, then the supplements can't save you. But if you have a good whole food diet and you train right and you're doing most things right, then I believe climbing performance nutrition can help you do even better, uh, especially for the more advanced climbers where nuance, you know, trying to get that extra percent or two is, is so important. Uh, and so long story short, you know, I launched Fizzy Vantage here in North America three years ago. We just began a distribution of three of our products in Europe uh, through uh, the Epic TV shop and through uh, Banana Fingers and, um, that just began on January 1st. So anybody in Europe listening to this, you can go to uh, the Epic TV shop and see what is there. And you can go to fizzyvantage.com and learn more about all of our nutritional products. Uh, though it's gonna take us a year or two to uh, bring the whole product line to Europe because uh, logistics quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, there is always, always logistical issues uh, working with Europe and uh, even internally within Europe uh, as well after the whole Brexit palaver. So um... yeah, and can I make one more comment uh, before we wrap things up here? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of sports nutrition out there, you know, uh, on the internet and in stores, uh, you know, different 
supplements and protein powders and this and that that promise all of these things. And of course, the supplement industry is rife with, uh, you know, um, um, let's say things that don't deliver what they promise, uh, or you might just say they, they are snake oil, you know, supplements that say they'll increase your testosterone and make you stronger and, you know, this and that. Uh, so I, I understand that, you know, climbers tend to be very thoughtful and skeptical people. And so when they hear about uh, nutrition supplements and, and such, they are, are rightfully skeptical because it is an industry uh, that has a lot of bogus things that are just kind of a waste of money and you piss your money away. But when I founded this company, you know, I staked my reputation on the idea that, you know, these are research-based, you know, science-based products that have value. And I believe tremendous value. They're not for everybody, but if you're doing a lot of the things right that we talked about in this podcast, then nutrition could be uh, another thing to help you unlock uh, more effectiveness in your training and climbing. And, uh, you know, these products, while not for everybody, I, I think there's tremendous value. And again, uh, they have, are, are, are based on science that I, I think provides enough evidence to give them a try. And uh, here in North America, where climbers have been using the Fizzy Vantage for a few years, the anecdotal evidence speaks for itself in the form of thousands of climbers who have used the product and continue to use the product because it works. And so I am really excited, kind of as a capstone to my long career uh, in training for climbing, to kind of this being, uh, uh, you know, something I can give back to the sport and uh, hopefully help, you know, uh, climbers enjoy their, uh, you know, the sport more, uh, more for more years and stay in the game longer. And, um, and I guess for me, it's a, a bit self-serving because I, I first and foremost developed the products for myself to help uh, the aging coach Hurst stay in the game longer. And I, I believe nutrition actually has a growing role as you age, uh, in, as an athlete, you more and more have to pay attention to how you eat. Uh, you know, a 20-year-old climber can get away with a lot more beer and pizza than a 40-year-old climber can. <laughs> right, Tom? <laughs> oh, God, I'm in my 40s. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to chat to you um, this evening. Um, I know it's um, afternoon time, your time, and evening my time. And um, I... Uh, I'm sure we will um, get chatting again on a follow-up podcast um, again at some point because I know before sort of off, off camera we were chatting about all sorts of different topics so there's more to come on this I'm sure and um, for everyone listening we'll put in the show notes links to um, Eric's um, web shop and uh, point you towards training for climbing, fizzy vantage etc um, so just look there if you want to know anything more about what Eric does and otherwise, thank you very much for listening and uh, we will see you on the Lattice podcast again very soon.